Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon. And welcome to the University of Edinburgh. And welcome also to the first of this session's uh, lectures in the Medical Detective series. As you will probably know, uh, the Medical Detective series is inspired uh, by the fact that Conan Doyle, uh, who, of course, wrote about Sherlock Holmes, trained in medicine here in the University of Edinburgh, indeed at the time that this, the oldest still existing lecture theatre, and that's why it's a wee bit uncomfortable, he probably was lectured to here. And he claimed that in devising Sherlock Holmes, he was very much influenced by the doctors that he had seen in the medical school, and they're explaining how they put together bits of evidence to make a case to show that something was so. And, of course, I mean, Sherlock Holmes is fiction, uh, but still, that is what is done to create medical advances. And this really has been the idea behind these medical detectives' lectures, and I hope that you will enjoy this one as much as people have enjoyed the ones that have gone before. I should explain that I'm Professor Johnston, and one of my wee part-time jobs is public engagement. And uh, this medical detective series is part of that endeavour to engage with the public and to have ordinary citizens of Edinburgh and elsewhere understand what we're doing. We would very much like to know if you like it, if you think we're getting it right, or if there are other things that you would rather have us do. Tonight's lecture is from Dr. Angela Thomas, this lady here. She is a consultant uh, paediatrician in haematology, and she is a senior lecturer in haematology at the University of Edinburgh. She is also on the Committee of Safety of Medicines. This is the committee in London that licenses drugs for human use. So it is a very important committee uh, because, of course, the drugs that are used, particularly for haematological conditions in children, need to be very carefully vetted indeed. And this is what Angela does. She is going to speak on the topic of curing leukaemia, mustard gas, guinea pigs, and DNA. Angela. Well, thank you very much, Eve. I mean, I'm very disappointed now because I thought Sherlock Holmes was real. <laughs> I was trained at Bart's, where the illustrious Dr Watson was trained, and there is a Sherlock Holmes room at Bart's right at the top of the pathology block, and I therefore thought he was real. Interestingly, underneath his room, there is the anatomy museum at Bart's, full of fairly gruesome specimens, including, and I remember this as a medical student, a finger which had developed uh, a sarcoma, a cancerous growth in it, because it belonged to a radiographer who used to put his finger on the X-ray plate while the X-rays were being taken so that it didn't move. Anyway, that will set the scene a little bit for this talk. So just setting the scene a bit further, I work in haematology, and blood contains different cell types. Most people have heard of red cells. They're the ones that make us anemic or not anemic, and they carry oxygen around the body. White cells fight infection. There are various different sorts of white cells, but the two main groups are lymphocytes, which are particularly helpful for, bacteria, for viral infections, but produce antibodies, so they're the ones that are very important in response to things like vaccination, and neutrophils, which help fight bacteria. There are also some tiny little cells called platelets that prevent bruising and bleeding. And just to show how logical haematologists are, the red cells are brown, 
The white cells are purple, red and blue, and the platelets are indeed very small. I'll come on to why they're different colours later on. So leukaemia is a cancer of the blood. It's the commonest cancer in children. So of all children's cancers, 40% are acute leukaemia. And lymphocytes, the two sorts of white cells I talked about, neutrophils and lymphocytes, they're the ones that most commonly go wrong. And they then result in leukemic cells, which are termed lymphoblasts. So of all the acute leukemias uh, in children, 85% are acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It is a very rare disease, about four per 100,000 children. And there are 420 new cases in children and young people up to the age of 24 per year in the UK. So childhood leukemias are different from adult leukemias. Children are growing and developing. They've had less exposure to the external environment, so less exposure to toxins, less exposure to chemicals, and obviously less exposure to age. With an ageing process, things don't go so well and mistakes can be made just simply because things are wearing out. But children are continually exposed to new proteins. These are things like uh, viruses and bacteria particularly. And the body has an immunological response to these foreign proteins or antigens. The lymphocytes uh, have the DNA in their cell is able to rearrange itself in response to these foreign proteins so that they form a very a careful sort of key and lock mechanism. They form receptors which closely fit the proteins to which they're exposed. So, for instance, if they're exposed to chickenpox virus, they rearrange the DNA so that they form a receptor that fits the chickenpox virus and they can produce an antibody. They do that all the time, very frequently, particularly when you're young, but they don't always do it correctly, and that's one of the problems. So why does cancer develop? Well, to grow and develop, the body's cells must respond to the environment, as I've just described. They have to multiply. As you grow, your blood volume gets bigger, so you need to increase the number of cells. You have to replicate cells as they wear out, and the cells themselves, if mistakes are made, they have to repair themselves. Mistakes can be made in that repair process, and some lead to cell death, but sometimes the repair is faulty and may lead and result in a cancerous cell. So how many cells do we have? Well, the little uh, illustration here is just of a very early uh, embryo, so there are not very many cells there. But in fact, our bodies are made up of 42 trillion cells. I thought I'd put all the noughts in just to see quite how big that is. Rather alarmingly, we have 40 trillion bacterial cells that live in harmony with us. Many of those are in the gut. Luckily, the cells are much, much smaller than our cells, so we don't see them. Four trillion of our cells make the solid tissues, and 38 trillion form the blood, which most people have heard of, and also lymph. And the lymph system is another liquid system that runs in vessels by the blood vessels and actually very rich in white cells. And around one million of our cells every second are lost, and many of these need to be replaced. So if you're feeling tired, it's why you're continually replacing all those cells. So in that process, surely mistakes are made. Well, many mistakes are made. So why don't we all get cancer? Well, as I said, some of the mistakes actually make the cells self-destruct, or the, the word that's used is apoptosis. Some cells, when the mistake is made, are recognised as foreign, and the immunological system gets rid of those. But occasionally some survive, and these may die out later, or they may have a growth advantage and the potential to cause cancer. So what happens to damaged cells? The DNA, as I've mentioned, could be damaged by, damaged by toxins, chemicals, and radiation, like the person who, whose finger 
uh, that was that was in the museum at Barts. Cells have repair kits so that they can repair the DNA, but some people have faulty repair kits. For instance, there's a disorder called Fanconi's anemia, where the DNA, there are lots of breaks happen in the DNA and the, the cells cannot repair them properly. And those children are more prone to acute leukemia and more prone to lymphomas later in life. So the more damage to the DNA in the cell, the more repair needs to take place, so the more opportunity there is for mistakes. So the risk of developing cancer is increased in rapidly dividing cells. And I think I've already said 38 trillion cells are in the blood and they're continually turning over. So that's why leukemia is particularly uh, common in children, particularly because of this continual rearrangement to recognize new proteins. Also, DNA can be damaged when it's exposed to damaging agents. And this is my public health bit here. Sunlight causes damage to DNA and it can cause skin cancer or melanoma. Smoking causes lung cancer. And nuclear irradiation and x-rays can cause cancers and leukemias. And again, alcohol misuse, because it continually damages the liver and the liver cells continually have to repair themselves, can lead sometimes to liver cancer. Marie Curie was a chemist and a physicist and won two Nobel Prizes. She was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize, and then she won another one just to show she, well, it wasn't just a fluke. But she uh, worked with radiation and dis uh, discovered it, and she died of leukemia after the work that she did. So, I've explained a little bit about the replication of cells and why we develop leukemia and cancers, but what are we really up against? We're up against uncontrolled, rapidly dividing cells, cells which don't mature, they don't function properly, and they also squeeze out the normal cells. So in the bone marrow where all these cells uh, are made, they make no room at all for the normal red-white cells and platelets, and therefore, uh, people who present with leukemia have a severe anemia, they have problems with infection, and problems with bleeding. Leukemia cells can also infiltrate solid tissues, uh, and that can result in organ failure, for instance, kidney failure. So I'll just show you a picture of normal blood. This is the same picture as before that I showed you, but it's a little bit larger. Um, and just to say, these are neutrophils here with the uh, multi-lobed nucleus. These little cells here are lymphocytes, and that's a monocyte, which is in a way a, a a bit more like a neutrophil, and then the red cells and the platelets, which I've mentioned before. And this is the blood of um, somebody who has acute leukemia. This is actually the blood, and the cells, these cells here, it's probably difficult to appreciate, but they are lymphoblasts. They don't look like normal, mature lymphocytes. They don't function properly. And this is the bone marrow of uh, that same patient, and there's nothing in the bone marrow but these leukemic blasts. Nothing else is able to be made. So what can we do? Well, first of all, we have to identify the culprit. It's only comparatively recently that leukemia has been described and categorized. We need to find out what's going on. Why do the cells uh, divide in uncontrolled fashion? We need to look for clues to see if we can stop that uncontrolled growth. We need to collaborate. And most importantly, we mustn't give up. So recognizing leukemia, well, white cells were first noted in 1749 and lymphocytes first described in 1774. Leukemia was first noted in 1841 and it was noticed because there was a change in the color of the blood. You know when you look at your blood, it's essentially a dark red color. Well, those people who had uh, this disease which as yet wasn't defined, their blood was noted to have be very sort of thick and, and yellowy in color in, in, and uh, that was the first thing that was noted, and gross enlargement of the spleen. 
Now, the spleen is on this side of your body, tucked under your rib cage, and you normally can't feel it. But it's one of those organs that gets full of leukemic cells and gets very large, and it can get very large indeed. Descriptions of leukemia were first published in 1845, and I'm pleased to say John Hughes Bennett from Edinburgh got there first. He uh, described leukemia and he called it leukocythemia, which for the, for the Greek scholars or which Greek scholars would know what it means, but the leuco means white, the scythe bit is a cell, and emia is of the blood, so increased white cells in the blood. Rudolf Virchow, working in Berlin, described leukemia six weeks later. But irritatingly, he actually did call it leukemia, and that's what has stuck. So just to show you, this is normal blood. The, that's the red cell there. It's been uh, allowed to settle over really quite some hours. And the, the red cells have settled at the bottom. You cannot see the white cell there. It's so thin. And the yellow stuff here is plasma. Now, this is a child who had um, probably about 100 to almost 1,000 times too many white cells in her blood and the blood has been settling for six hours. And I think the top, you can see, is a very white layer. And in fact, it was still sedimenting out, but all this are leukemia cells. So a very, very high number of leukemia cells. And that's what was first noticed in people who uh, suffered from leukemia. So in 1850, the first descriptions were all in adults. In 1850, a child with pediatric leukemia was described. And it was a nine-year-old girl who was admitted to St. George's Hospital in London. Now, this actually was extraordinary in itself because children were kept out of hospital. They brought diseases into hospital and caused other people in hospital to become unwell. So they were not welcome in hospital at all. But this child, surprisingly, had been admitted. And the history was that she had spongy gums, she frequently bled, and she had a very large spleen. And when her blood was looked at under fairly primitive microscope, they saw colourless globules. Well, this case was put to an expert panel in 1992, some of whom taught me uh, about haematology, and their diagnosis was that the child had chronic myeloid leukaemia. And in fact, the other cases described by Virchow and Bennett were also of a chronic leukaemia, one that lasts a long time and doesn't cause such acute illness and rapid death. In 1852, it's good to see the US behind the UK here. They first reported leukaemia some five years later and it was gradually accepted as a distinct disease. And then soon after that, acute leukaemia was described. Some colourless cells were noted at the top of the thorax, which is this bit up here. And in fact, behind your breastbone, you have a gland called the thymus, which is where T lymphocytes, a particular sort of lymphocyte, um, is collects or, and actually uh, divides and multiplies. And if that becomes abnormal leukaemia, you can get a very big mass in your chest. So that was what was noted in this particular patient. And the course of the disease was only six weeks, so very rapid. And the diagnosis was acute lymphatic leukaemia. It does get a bit more cheery later on, but this is just the history. So St. Bartholomew's Hospital was important, actually, in that uh, in 1873, the first transfusion took place there. Um, and it was successful, and it relieved the suffering of a patient who probably had uh, acute leukaemia. Everything went so well that another physician thought, well, he'd do it again for a child who, again, probably had leukaemia, who was bleeding. But the transfusion terminated fatally. Now, this was before anybody knew about uh, cross-matching blood and making sure the blood matched. Um, but the physician, Dr. George West, undeterred, went on to found Great Ormond Street Hospital. I think in these days we'd be up before the GMC, but he, he, was, he did okay. 
uh, x-rays had been uh, discovered, and it was found that in people who presented with a leukemia-type illness and a very big spleen, if you irradiated the spleen, they got better for a while, but they didn't, it didn't cure the leukemia. And again, these are descriptions probably of people with chronic leukemia. So, identifying leukemia. How can we do better than just saying there's a superation of the blood or pus in the blood? So here we are, the pus in the blood. Well, lenses were developed. Uh, they were initially fairly um, rudimentary. There are some reports of microscopes in 1200 and something, but in the late uh, 1500s, 1600s, um, were, they were more sophisticated. But they then learned to use more than one lens together, so you got much better magnification. The microscopes improved, particularly the light source, and you were able then to see right, white and red cells. But the white cells were truly white, and you couldn't really see them. They looked like colourless globules. And then Ehrlich, who was only 23, he was a medical student in 1877, had, had been playing around with different stains, and he found that you could stain the blood. Uh, and this blood film here, which is, again, is the one bit, bit overused now, third time you've seen it, um, has been stained with a, a Romanovsky stain, with, which is a mixture of methylene blue, a blue stain, and eosin, which is a red stain. So here we have quite clearly the old-fashioned but rather beautiful microscopes, the one here is much more like the microscope that I use, um, which has compound lenses and can magnify things really very large indeed. And this is a big pot of methylene blue that you seriously do not want down your front. Okay, so by 1900, so 100, just over 100 years ago, one could identify blood cells by staining a microscopy. You could tell the different cell lines, myeloblasts, matured into neutrophils, if all, every, everything was going according to plan, lymphocytes matured into lymphocytes, and it was known in 1868, uh, one of the uh, researchers in, looked at bone marrow and leukemia and saw that it was all white and actually made the connection that the bone marrow was the source of blood cells. So we now know what the, who, who the enemy is, so to speak, but no treatment. Leukemia was better defined, different subtypes of leukemia, but there's no form of effective therapy. So quinine was tried, morphine was tried, opium was tried, iron was tried. None of these worked. Interestingly, in 1865, arsenic was used for the chronic form of leukemia, and actually it did work. It gave a temporary response. Uh, one of the reasons, I think, was for trying it, is it had been used for skin lesions and it seemed to work, but it worked in chronic leukemia. Uh, Ehrlich, again, with his stains, uh, was trying out different compounds, and he used arsenic for syphilis, and actually it cured syphilis to a degree. Uh, and then, 100 years later... Uh, arsenic was again used in a particular type of myeloid leukemia, acute promyelocytic leukemia, and actually it's very successful. So it's mainline drug again in the treatment of acute leukemia, not lymphoblastic leukemia, however. It was talked of as a new drug, but of course it's clearly it isn't. So how are we going to discover things that will actually help us cure leukemia? Well, some things are discovered by chance. Some require a bit of lateral thinking. And sometimes you actually can think, that must be what's going on. I'm going to go out specifically and see if that's the case. And in fact, all these types of clues were required in terms of trying to find a cure for childhood leukemia. So the first clue came from chemicals, World War I, the observation of the results of chemical warfare, dreadful uh, weapons, but they actually, some small good came out of observing carefully what they did to people. There was also, about 20, 30 years later, recognition that in cells, in order to divide and replicate, there were essential chemicals were needed. And the thought was, if you could block those essential chemicals, then maybe that would stop the cell growing. 
And there was also the recognition of vitamins. Uh, and the, the major thing there was that, that tiny amounts of something, a chemical, could actually have a profound effect on the cell. I'm just going to talk through some of the things that were discovered. So the first one has to be mustard gas, because that's the first bit in the title. So after the First World War in 1919, some soldiers exposed to mustard gas were actually still very ill. It did cause burns, but it also was noted that it caused bone marrow failure and that the lymphoid tissue seemed to have shrunk. The lymphoid tissue is a solid uh, tissue that lymphocytes will sit in, like the spleen and your swollen glands that you get when you're unwell. So when World War II was declared, there was a great concern that chemical weapons were going to be used again. And again, they thought maybe it would be mustard gas. So nitrogen mustards were studied very carefully. They were studied in the UK, but they also were studied in the US. And the US entered the war in 1941. And at that point, military secrets were exchanged and people were allowed to collaborate. And both parties had discovered that mustard gas damaged lymphoid organs and bone marrow. Because of the Official Secrets Act, none of this could be published until about 1947-48. But during the, the preceding years, the, the uh, mustard gas or nitrogen mustards had been tried out to see if they had an effect in lymphoid cancer, which in fact they did. And so they were pretty toxic drugs. Um, so to try and decrease their toxicity, small changes in the chemical were made and the alkylating agents, melphalan, busulfan and chlorambucil were uh, I, I made, made from the base of the nitrogen mustard. These drugs, all these three drugs, are still used today. They're used in leukaemia, bone marrow transplant, and myeloma. They're not actually used in acute lymphoblastic leukaemia, but they were the first chemicals that were shown to really have an effect on the blood system, which may be beneficial. So clues from other fatal diseases. In the 1930s, there were no antibiotics, and bacteria infections killed you. And in fact, there were some very similar um, parallels with acute leukemia. Bacterial infection was rapidly multiplying bugs. They caused organ dysfunction and failure. And for instance, if you had a very severe infection in your lung, you developed pneumonia and you died because you couldn't breathe. Pernicious anemia uh, was also a fatal disease. It was found that people just didn't seem to be able to make blood and they died from bone marrow failure, from anemia, bleeding and infection. And although I don't know that many people will appreciate this, but these red cell nuclei, the center, this is a red cell before it's spat its nucleus out. And these should be nice and sort of dark and solid. And they look a bit, I always like to call them salami cells. They look a bit like salami, which they shouldn't do, but that's a term we use for megaloblastic bone marrow. So the, the cells here are short of B12, which is what happens. So curing fatal diseases, bacterial infection. In 1932, prontosil was a nice red dye, and here's some prontosil here. And it was developed as a dye because when you dyed wool or uh, silk with it, the, the colours didn't run. But it was also observed you could actually colour bacterial cells. And the thought, which is, this is one of these sort of wacky lateral thinking things, well, if the dye sticks to the bacteria, and, and maybe it would kill them, and therefore if you inject it into somebody, maybe it would find the bacteria, stick to them, and kill them. It is a little bit far-fetched. But there were some experiments in mice. Uh, they, mice were, were injected with prontosil to see if they would, um, what would happen with infection. And in fact, the mice uh, who were given the prontosil did not die from infection. Now, during these experiments, Dr. Um, I'm going to forget his name now, Domac, um, who also got a Nobel Prize, his daughter, 
pricked her finger with a needle and got a very severe streptococcal infection from which she was dying. And he was desperate, and he injected her with prontosil, and she recovered in two days. And people didn't really believe it. They thought it was, it was like magic, too much of a miracle. It couldn't be true. However, Franklin D. Roosevelt's son also developed a very severe infection a year or two later, uh, and it was used to treat him, and he survived. And then people said, well, if, if his son has survived. He was also called Franklin D. Roosevelt, which was a bit confusing. But if he survived, then maybe uh, Prontosil is a proper antibiotic. So later in Pasteur's lab, it was discovered that Prontosil worked because it contained a substance called sulfonilamide, uh, which actually was very similar to something that was absolutely required, a chemical that was required in the cell's metabolic pathway. And because it was so similar, the cell got confused and looked, tried to use the sulfonilamide, and it didn't work. And therefore, it prevented DNA synthesis, and it prevented the cell growth. And that was the first time there was an indication that if you could block the metabolite with an anti-metabolite, maybe that would stop cell growth. So this was applied to bacteria, and there were people around saying, maybe we could do this with cancer. Some people said, oh, don't be so silly, of course you can't. But there were people who thought that perhaps you could. Then the other fatal disease, 1934, pernicious anemia. Uh, a red cell maturation factor was identified. I won't tell you the full experiment because it really was truly disgusting, but um, they thought maybe this factor was in the stomach. And so they, there were various methods of how you got the, the uh, gastric juices out. And they gave them to people who had pernicious anemia and they were cured. And that was actually um, purified and found to be vitamin B12. Other vitamins were then identified, folic acid or folate, which was important for blood, and vitamin D, which is important for bones. So those were a few things that have been discovered. Chemicals, which actually seem to now cure diseases. So could chemicals work when treating cancer? Would they cause a lot of damage? I mean, the nitrogen muscles were very toxic. And how should they be given? So I'm just going to mention five drugs, uh, early chemotherapy. And I know there are one or two parents in the audience of children who have gone through treatment or are going through treatment for acute leukemia and they will recognize all these drugs. Um, so although they were discovered in 1947, some of them, they are still used today because they work. They are very successful. So the drugs I'm going to discuss are methotrexate, steroids, 6-mercaptopurine, vincristin and L-asparaginase. I've already mentioned that leukemia cells are immature. And folate, we know, or was known to be essential for healthy cells. So the hypothesis was if you gave a person folate, the cells would actually mature. Now, the experiments were all a little bit tricky. Some, the thinking behind this was not quite right. Anyway, the result was when patients were given folate, many of them, things seemed to get worse. The white cell count went up. So the hypothesis then changed to, well, let's give an antifolate to see if that will stop the cell growing. And so this is a very important man, Sidney Farber, who worked in Boston and had a whole institute named after him for the work that he did in leukaemia. At this stage, it was thought unethical to treat children with leukaemia because the disease was so awful, they all died. Uh, so actually, it was completely wrong. And he said, no, I've got hold of this drug. It's an antifolate. It was called aminopterin, not quite methotrexate. I want to try it. And he treated 16 infants and children and 10 patients. The leukaemia went away. It came back, but it went away. It was absolutely dramatic quite startling. And people in, around America, particularly a chap called Joe Birchnell at the uh, Sloan Memorial Hospital in New York, said, I want to get hold of some of this failure. I want to try this on my patients. So it was the first trial in acute leukemia. So there was the folate story going on. 
steroids, I think many, most people will have heard of steroids and some of you will have used them. Uh, it was called compound E, the people that wrote this particular paper, although other people have called it compound F or compound FA, but it was isolated from beef adrenal glands um, and was tested in 1944. There were a lot of experiments that were done with it to see what effects it produced, but because it came from beef adrenals, actually there weren't very many, um, weren't, wasn't very much of it about, um, but it was found that patients, or in fact these were animal models who had lymphoma, it did improve the lymphoma. A few years later, it was able to be synthesized from bile acid, so much more of this drug was available, and it was tried in patients with a variety of diseases. And there's a fascinating paper from 1950 where steroids were given to patients with a whole variety of diseases, and most of them improved if they had immune disorders such as SLE and rheumatoid arthritis. There's a very uh, eloquent paragraph on the effects of the mental state, how some people were very happy, but some people became psychotic, uh, and some people became very depressed, and we still see the side effects of the steroids used today. In acute leukemia, responses were seen particularly in children, but the responses were temporary and relapses were to be expected. And if you use steroids continuously, the disease eventually became refractory to them. So further drug discoveries. Joe Birchnell, as I've said, was in New York, and he had already got a lab of people trying to synthesize um, anti-metabolites to some of the nucleic acids in DNA, the structure, uh, the... the, the um, inside our cells which codes for all our proteins. At this stage the structure of DNA had not yet been uh, put forward but nevertheless he had a whole team of people making antipurines and antipyrimidines which are two uh, purines and pyrimidines and two of the nucleic acids. And 6-mecaptopurine showed promise. It wasn't too toxic and it seemed to work and also children to whom he'd given uh, methotrexate, it seemed to work in them when they were, didn't respond any longer to methotrexate. So it was used clinically in 1953 in synergy uh, with the antifolates. Vincristin from the periwinkle. It's a folk remedy that's been used for centuries and it contains many alkaloids. It contains actually up to about 50 alkaloids. And alkaloids are sort of drugs which include morphine, strychnine, not terribly good for you, quinine and nicotine, also not terribly good for you. And it was initially developed for diabetes. Uh, but in fact, when they were giving it to patients with diabetes, they found that it caused bone marrow suppression. And the reason it did that was because, if you read the middle bit first, vincristin is a spindle poison and prevents mitosis, or the division of rapidly dividing cells. And that's because when a cell divides, the chromosomes, we have 46 chromosomes, and within the chromosomes, all the DNA sits in the genetic code. They form pairs... Spindles form from the ends of the cells to each one each of a pair and they get pulled apart and then the cell membrane comes around and you get two identical cells. Uh, and vincristin poisons the spindles so that this bit can't take place. And then to our guinea pig. Guinea pig serum was known to contain a lot of useful things. People didn't really know what they were, but they contained a lot of useful things. And they were given to mice with lymphoma in 1953, and some of these mice got very much better, and in fact had a complete response. The agent was sometime later discovered as L-asparaginase, which is an enzyme, and it depleted um, an amino acid called asparagine, which is one of the 20 most common amino acids in the world. And Fortunately, leukemic cells can't make asparagine. Human cells can, leukemic cells can't. And therefore, if they were given asparaginase, there was nutritional deprivation and inhibition of protein synthesis. They're present in the serum of the family Caviidae, which is South American rodents. And the interesting thing, if you do drug trials 
these days, you have to use different doses of a drug to show that you get a dose response. So you have a low dose, you get a small response, bigger dose, larger response, until you reach a maximum response. And interesting, the different species have different levels of asparaginase in their serum. And so rather than doing a formal dose response curve, they, they looked at um, response to the different serum from the different species and found that there was a, a dose response depending on the serum used. Fortunately, E. coli, which is a rapidly dividing bug, which causes quite nasty disorders, um, also produces asparaginase, and so therefore by culturing this uh, on an industrial scale, L-asparaginase was available in large quantities and first used in leukemia in 1966. So at this stage, there are five drugs over a period of, of under 20 years which work individually in leukemia, and the idea was if you could combine them, got a multi-pronged attack, they all work by different mechanisms, things would be more effective, doses of individual drugs could be reduced, and toxicity hopefully decreased. So I'm now going to come on to uh, childhood leukemia and how you treat it, and it's here that the collaborative effort is the most important <coughs> The aim of treatment is to destroy leukemic cells, and while they're being destroyed, to support the bone marrow failure that will inevitably follow. You have the failure due to the disease itself, but also because you've heard many of these drugs are actually toxic to the bone marrow as well. You try and reduce the risks of side effects in the short term, at the time you're giving the chemotherapy, but also in the long term, because more children survive for longer, and it's really important that you make sure that you keep them as healthy as possible in the long term too. So you need to balance risks and benefits. But how do you do that in rare diseases? I've said they're very rare, four, four per 100,000 children. We have about 10 to 12 children per year at the Sick Children's in Edinburgh, which you know, is, is a, a reasonable number, but not a very large number for doing careful trials. So the important thing to do is to collaborate. There are specialist centres, of which Edinburgh is one. There are 22 specialist centres around the UK, and it enables the development of expertise in these very difficult conditions. So there's collaborations within centres, so sometimes we, we discuss our problems with, with the adult side because we can share our expertise between centres and also between countries, particularly the US and Europe. And clinical trials are designed to test the drugs and also to test other hypotheses about how much treatment will be needed, whether you can decrease treatment, are there better ways of predicting how children will do. So in for in the UK and the US, the UK Medical Research Council started to support cancer chemotherapy right from the very beginning, 1947, and as did the US. And by 1950 in the US, three-quarters of patients who had leukemia were receiving chemotherapy. So the Medical Research Council has been actually very key to the development and progress made in childhood ALL. Uh, in 1955, they funded a study. They developed a working party. They developed further working parties. There was one working party to try and type the leukemia, which developed into eventually into a group with French, American, and British people. They called themselves the FAB group. I can't think why. Um, but, so all these things were, were being done so to try and define the disease better and to actually work together looking at the drugs. Large numbers of patients are required to show small differences, and therefore it was really important everybody worked together. But because people now believed that these drugs worked, there could be no placebo arm for these trials. There had to be contemporaneous controls, and the controls usually were the drugs that were known to work compared with either a new way of giving the drugs or a new drug added in. So no placebos were allowed. So multi-centre trials in the UK started, initially in just a few centres. They were very simple, six mercaptopurine with steroids either at high dose or low dose. Children under 14 were excluded because it was thought unethical. 
and Great Ormond Street began a trial in 1960. And a special paediatric subcommittee for looking at leukaemia was formed in 1963. So the clinical trials allowed scientific evaluation of treatment, but they also were in some ways a form of medical and scientific self-defence. There was a lot of scepticism about treating these very sick children. The drugs were known to be very toxic, very difficult to use. And therefore, it was really quite important that you said, no, we've discussed this together. We think this is the right way forward and that you do it in a very carefully controlled manner and not have mavericks all over the place. However, there were potential oppositions. Hematologists were known as such individualists, which I don't think was meant to be a compliment. Promising new chemotherapeutic agents were tried before actually clinical efficacy had been established. That's not the case these days. You can only do that in phase one and then phase two trials. But all the, all the drugs, many of the drugs in those days had not been properly established as being uh, of use. Trials were also quite important about keeping physicians in line. Um, it was noted, and this is a long time ago, and again, these problems remain with us. Inadequate record keeping, deviation from protocol, and unnecessarily exclusion from patients. Because if, you, if you're trying to show that something works, if you exclude all the patients that you think aren't going to do very well, you'll make your treatment look very much better. So it's very important that people who were supposed to be in trials were included so that you've got the proper picture. It was found that physicians collaborated better if they were on these leukaemia working parties and felt part of the developing uh, um, specialty of haematology. But it was noted that actually in the US, the regimes were more intensive and actually the, the US patients were doing rather better than the UK. So in 1965, the UK visited the US and they were indeed using the same drugs, but more aggressively. They were giving higher doses and for longer to induce and maintain remission. And remission is the term used for after a month's treatment, you look at the bone marrow at the beginning of treatment and then a month later to see whether the bone marrow is looking normal. And if it is, that's considered to be <coughs> remission. It was known if you stopped treatment at that point, the disease would inevitably come back and therefore treatment was continued for an indefinite length of time. The American way was to kill all the leukemic cells to avoid resistance and drugs were given at maximum dosage and in combination for their synergistic effect. However, because they were more aggressive, there was increased infection and hemorrhage, so it was really important there was a growth of supportive therapy so that your patients did not die from the therapy that you gave them. <coughs> So the US strength was their multidisciplinary approach. The UK strength was typing of the leukemia, organizing the trials, and statistical analysis. So the supportive therapy, antibiotics, as you've heard, that they only came in just, just a little before uh, treatment for leukemia, a sterile environment, and platelet and blood transfusion. Uh, physicians or clinicians were concerned with cost. I think we still hear today, people say, oh, the transplant units are so expensive. And so on. And again, it was the same in those days that haematologists had application of extraneous ideas in an extravagant manner. So there was quite a lot of opposition, but the people who were treating these diseases were determined to keep going because they were winning. So to maximize efficiency, specialist centers were set up to improve compliance, develop clinical haematology, concentrate support service, and build up expertise and there was a leukemia trials office opened to help collect all the data. There is no point having these trials with complex patients using complex therapies if you don't record precisely what you're doing. And I know that nowadays, some, if any of you who are involved in clinical trials, sometimes you say, it's so much paperwork, just can't do it. You know, but it's really important that these data are collected. And then the UK ALL trials began in earnest, which we call, we call them the UCAL trials. 
So the lessons that were learned from the US, that you need to treat intensively, you mustn't allow gaps in treatment. Um, the question was asked, is it unethical to give such intensive treatment when there was an anxiety about children in trials? There was a concerted effort for the clinicians to keep going, but actually the people who kept them going were the parents and the children who wanted to enter trials. They wanted to be treated. They wanted to try out these treatments because they'd seen and heard some of the uh, spectacular successes that had occurred. So it was really a push from the patients and families themselves that kept things going initially. So in the mid-1970s, the US were using something called total therapy. They used <coughs> several other different drugs along with the five that I've already mentioned and also irradiation, and they had a 50% cure. We were unable to match that in the UK with our trials one to seven, and we wondered why. The US view was that UK clinicians are too English and too gentle. So the UK adapted the US protocol and called it UCAL-8. Now, the general plan for therapy in acute lymphoblastic leukemia is induction, that is, that first four weeks of therapy to get you into remission, and then continued treatment of some sort. When treatments were first started, and for instance, people like Birchnell and Faber, Faber, sorry, they started treatment, and some children had treatment for eight, nine, ten years because they didn't quite know when to stop. But anecdotally, it seemed that about five years of this therapy was probably enough. It was much less intense than now. A lot of it was oral therapy. The therapy has evolved so that you have an induction phase, this four-week phase, and then an intensifying phase, and then a maintenance phase. And the maintenance phase came from a chap called Don Pinkle's group in the 1960s who pioneered the total therapy approach. And the logic for this long maintenance therapy was that he noted for TB, um, it was known that you had to give treatment for TB for a long time. Because of the cycling of the, the cells, they couldn't be killed off just with a short course of antibiotics. And he thought, well, maybe that's what's happening with leukemia. We will give prolonged treatment. And in fact, today for acute lymphoblastic leukemia, there's a difference between girls and boys, which is unexplained. But girls have about two years treatment and boys have about three years treatment. So a very, very long haul. Is it all worth it? Well, in 1972, UCAL-2, simple therapy, frequent breaks. You have to remember this slide. 84, UCAL-8, that was the first of the more intensive therapy, but it's still fairly simple. And that's when I actually entered this sort of business. 1984 was when I started in haematology. In 1990, there was a, a trial called UCAL-10, which had arm A with no intensification, arm B with one early intensification, arm C, one late intensification, and arm D with two intensifications, and the UCAL-10 arm D did the best. That tried to be improved upon um, in UCAL-97-99 by trying to work out which patients were likely to need more therapy and which were likely to need less. And we knew that some needed less because in UCAL-10, some children were cured with no intensification at all. So we knew that there must be a better way of sorting out who required more therapy and who required less. So the risk-directed therapy was based on age, white cell count, and response. And just before I show you the next slide, measuring success in many trials, um, but particularly cancer trials or leukemia trials, event-free survival is the measure. So it's often taken at five years so that you compare, can compare treatments at five years, event-free survival. An event is a relapse of the leukemia or death. Overall survival will include patients who have relapsed 
and therefore it will always be higher than event-free survival. But that's the key thing that we use, event-free survival. So here we are, it's a startling increase in survival. Now, I perhaps shouldn't say, but Dr. Johnson was saying before the lecture that, she said, I don't understand this business about you saying things were quite good. She said, we were treating people with mustine in the 1960s. So I think Dr. Johnson is down in this group here because the children did not do well. But as time got, went by and more therapeutic agents were available and given more intensively, here we are in 1985 to 97, over 70% of children were cured at five years. No disease at five years. So a startling improvement from the 4% in the early 60s. So the benefits of trials were recognised. Improved survival, collaborative research helped you identify adverse risk factors. It helped understand a little bit the genetics, uh, the genetic mutations that are seen in the leukaemia cells. As I've said, that the DNA is, becomes abnormal and makes the cell leukemic, and you can detect that abnormality. And sometimes there's a specific pattern seen, and sometimes those specific patterns go with a particular, you know they're going to be harder to treat, and therefore you give more therapy. Treatment was standardised and began to tailor therapy to the risk of relapse, how difficult the, the, the leukaemia was going to be to treat. However, we were still monitoring the leukaemia by looking down a microscope, which is what I do, and... If you look down a microscope, you can sometimes see about 1%, 2% blasts, but it's very difficult. You couldn't work out 1 in 10,000 blasts. There just are not enough cells for you to be able to recognise them. And it was known that the, if you put them into risk groups, the children in the low-risk group, still quite a lot of those children relapsed, so we knew that the risk groups were not quite right. So we needed better predictive tests. The fixed factors are age. If you're under 10, leukaemia is easier to treat. Girls do need less treatment than boys. White cell count at diagnosis is important. If it's over 50, uh, you require more treatment up front. And again, if you have these abnormal chromosomal patterns, sometimes you need more treatment up front. And the other thing that was measured was how quickly the disease responded to the first week or two of treatment. And if it responded quickly, then you were at a better risk than if it took a longer time. All these things were assessed morphologically or uh, by looking down the microscope. So these are looking at the different trials in a different way from the uh, other diagram I've just shown you. And this is the early UCAL-8 where about 50% of patients survived, going up to about nearly 60, and then 75, 76, and up in the most recent trial on this slide, which finished in 1999, up to about 80%. So I've just said morphology, and that's the, the, the looking at the cells with a microscope, is insensitive for detection of residual leukaemia. You can see it when it's in your face, and you can see it day 29 if you can't see any, but you can't see if there's very little or a little or none at all. And as I said, most patients who relapse actually, because they're the largest group, actually have come from a group that you would expect to do well. So it's quite difficult. And I just want to illustrate this, and I'll go through this slide slowly. So looking at the, using clinical uh, parameters to stratify your group, so arm A is somebody who'd be less than 10 years old with a white cell count of less than 50 who has a rapid early response, has responded well to the first few weeks of therapy. And if you have 100 uh, people, about 62% will be in that group. Arm B, you're either greater than 10 years old and have a white cell count greater than 50, or you can be greater than 10 years old with a white cell count under 50, and you still have a rapid early response. About 22% of children will be in that group. And for arm C, you have either a slow response 
or poor cytogenetics. So 16% are in that. And you can see that the event-free survival is the best in arm A, but it's very similar in arm B and C. And although only 18% of low-risk patients relapse, whereas 27, 25% of intermediate and high-risk patients relapse, of the total number of relapses, more patients in number-wise relapse in the low-risk group. So although they do better, still quite a number are relapsing. So 52% of the relapses are from the low-risk group, 20% from the high-risk group. And we know, as I've mentioned from the previous data, that not all children require all those intensifications because from the 60s and 70s, and even early 80s, 50% of patients were cured with no intensification in UKL8. So how can we detect this residual disease? Light mi the light microscope is not sensitive enough. And this brings us to the DNA uh, after the guinea pig. So we need molecular investigation. Leukemia cells are unique to each patient. The cells have their own fingerprint, and the DNA, as we've said already, inside them is abnormal. And that abnormal pattern can be identified using molecular techniques. Uh, and probes can be used that recognize that unique pattern. That bit of the DNA is amplified in something called the polymerase chain reaction, and it can be amplified enough to be seen, and it acts like a molecular microscope. And very low levels of disease can be detected. So one leukemia cell in 10,000 normal cells. And that is so much better than what we can do just by simply looking at them. So there is a way of probing uh, the bone marrow when you're looking at it to see whether you've just got no cells you can see or whether you really have very, very few cells. And so this is a, a scheme of a patient here. If you have your bone marrow full of cells, it spills out into the peripheral blood, which is this pink bit. All the bit underneath is the stuff that I couldn't see looking down the microscope, but there may be disease there. I don't know, I just can't see it. And supposing you have patient number one who is treated and their disease responds rapidly. Patient number two doesn't respond quite so rapidly, and patient number three less rapidly still. Well, if you did a bone marrow at one month, i.e. at day 29, all of them would be in remission by looking down the microscope, but this patient would have undetectable disease by using the molecular test. This patient would have low-level disease by the molecular test. And this patient would have higher-level disease by the molecular test. And it was thought that maybe this would be the way to help direct therapy. This patient who actually hasn't responded very well is much more likely to relapse than the patients down here. And we know that because we have the results of those trials now. So... Minimal re residual disease, the molecular microscope, you can test that out within a randomized trial, intensify therapy in those with detectable disease, and reduce therapy in those with no detectable disease. So this is a very slightly different grouping from the previous slide. This is from uh, a German group, the Berlin Frankfurt Munster group. And using their clinical risk criteria, which are similar but not the same as ours, they ended up with a lot of people in the intermediate risk category. But you can see that the largest number of patients who relapsed was in that intermediate category, although they're only supposed to be intermediate risk. So they were re-stratified, because this was done not in real time, it was done retrospectively initially in these early trials to see if it worked. They were re-stratified, these same patients, using their MRD, or minimal residual disease results. And you can see now how it falls out really very neatly that those who were in the low-risk group by MRD, i.e. that first green line, only one patient relapsed. They have an event-free survival of 
20%. The intermediate group slightly more relapsed and just a few more in the high group. So this did look very promising that using this molecular microscope was a good way of identifying low-risk patients. So the trial that followed on from the, 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 the one that finished essentially in 2001 was called UCAL 2003. And the design was to initially put patients into those categories, standard, intermediate, and high risk, which you can do more or less at the time they present because you know their age, you know what their white cell count is, and at day 15 or day 8, you can look to see how they've responded. So what was also done is that the first bone marrow taken at diagnosis, the molecular marker or the DNA fingerprint was taken for each individual, which were done in centralised labs. Our lab was Glasgow um, to identify that cell specifically. And then at day 29, we would send some bone marrow to the lab and they would use the same probes for that particular patient to see if they could amplify the DNA and see if it was present at less than 1 in 10,000 10, or whether it was detectable. And so if it wasn't detectable, there was a low-risk group. And if it was detectable, it was called high-risk. There was nothing really in between, um, which is unfortunate, because I think if you're either low-risk or high-risk, that's not always the greatest thing to, to hear. But it was the way that the, the terminology was used. And those in the low-risk group were randomised to, to have either standard therapy, which at this point was two intensifications, which I said was the best arm from UCAL-10D, or one intensification. And those in the high-risk had either the standard regimen with two intensifications or to an even more intensive regimen, regimen C. So it opened in October 2003 and closed in June 2011. Over 3,000 patients were registered. So that was extraordinary. It was nearly about 95% or 96% of all people eligible were actually randomised into the trial, were actually registered onto the trial. Only a third of patients were randomised, but it still gave a high enough number to be able to interpret the results. Interestingly, during the trial, it was noticed that young people who were treated on the children's protocols did very much better than if they were treated on the adult protocols. I mean, very much better, like twice as, twice as well. And therefore, part of the way through the trial, the age limit was increased to 25 years of age. In fact, 56 patients were over the age of 20. Um, and that's actually been a, very, a, a major advance in terms of recognising that younger people or older children... Uh, do better on the children's protocol. So at the end, when the, the results are just beginning to come through now, they always take a while after a trial to mature because you have to wait for patients, say, who were recruited in 2010 to get to, say, 2015, 16 to be able to interpret the results fully. But what is absolutely clear is if you are MRD low-risk, all patients, uh, patients whether you had one delayed intensification or two, the event-free survival was the same. So therefore, the second intensification is not needed. The toxicity was not great, but it's not needed. For the high-risk arm, it's not clear yet. The results are not absolutely clear um, as to whether everybody should have t uh, the more intensive regimen. But what we do know is it does give increased toxicity, but there was no loss of, loss of life or children in delivering that therapy. So those results were awaited, but the standard therapy now is that all children with low risk just have one delayed intensification. So these are, if you can remember back to the 4% in the 60s, these are now the results from the 2003-2010, that's where the data is matured to, trial. So if you're in the lowest group, 96% event-free survival at five years, with 98% overall survival. 
if you're intermediate risk where you have a sort of slightly indeterminate level of uh, MRD, you're about 85%. And if you're high risk, you're still over 80%. Event-free survival at five years. And if you put all the children together, uh, you end up with um, an event-free survival around 86% and an overall survival of 91%. So in 50 years, you've come from 4% up to uh, 90%. So the achievements were that MRD-based therapy works, you can reduce the therapy uh, where your MRD risk is low, there probably is a benefit of increasing intensity for high risk, and in doing that you halve the relapse risk compared with the previous trial. So if you go into remission, you are half as likely to relapse as you were on the previous therapy. And the other very important thing is there's much better outcomes for teenagers and young adults who previously had often had to go for a stem cell transplant, which is a much more toxic therapy. So those were the achievements. But as I said at the beginning, we mustn't give up. They're very good results, but we mustn't give up. There is more that we can do. And so there, therefore, is a current trial, ALL 2011, which is really quite complex, but it's aiming to refine the prognostic factors a bit more, vary the intensity of therapy with risk, reduce the therapy burden, reduce early and late toxicity, not at the expense of efficacy, and very important quality of life study is being done alongside. So this is just that a final graph going out to 2010. So you can see, again, in 50 years, you go from 4% to 86% uh, event-free survival for all children with leukemia, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And Sherlock Holmes said, because when you think of some of the wacky things people did, like injecting dye into you to see if you'd get better from bacterial infections, when you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And I'd just like to thank particularly the parents and the children who have stuck with the doctors and their clinical trials uh, for all these years and have helped benefit the next generation of children who've been treated. And I'd also like to mention a colleague, my colleague Brenda Gibson in Glasgow, who's led one of the trials and is always there to answer questions and to discuss things. Nick Goulden from Great Ormond Street, who designed the 2011 trial, and AJ Bora, who's been very helpful with the previous trial. Um, and this is Dr. Watson, and that, of course, is Sherlock Holmes. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Angela. That was super. And it was lovely to have such an optimistic story to, to have told. I mean, most of these lectures, people saw these lovely results and we found this, and we found that, and we very, very much hope that sometime soon treatment's going to be a bit better than it has been. But actually, no, that's sometime in the sweet by and by, and there's an awful lot of hope, but not too much reality. But this has happened certainly in my clinical lifetime. 4% up to 98%. It's just, just wonderful. It must, of course, still be very, very difficult for the people who suffer from these illnesses and very, very difficult for their relatives. I am very aware that that is so, but it's a lot better than it was. And hopefully it'll get better still. Thank you very much indeed. That was really excellent. This production